Welcome to Meals for Maturity, Bible talks to help you mature as a follower of Jesus, by Pastor Dom Fiocco. I hope you're finding our Meals for Maturity series on numbers beneficial as you listen along. Whatever you're doing, maybe you're driving or you're walking or you're gymming, cooking, resting, milking your goat, knitting socks for a grandchild, whenever you find 20 minutes or so to maybe focus more on God's word. I hope you're finding it helpful. Because we're in the Old Testament, biblical theology demands that any Bible talk needs to point us to see and hear Christ in all of Scripture, asking the question like, how does this Old Testament passage relate to the New Testament? And there's many different strands or pathways, if pathways if you like, from moving out of the Old Testament into the New Testament era with the gospel of grace front and centre. And as we go through this series, I hope to show you various legitimate ways of reading the Old Testament, understanding it in its original setting and context, and then working out how this might apply to you and me as followers of the risen Lord Jesus. Well, for the next two Bible talks, we're going to anchor down in Numbers chapter 6. Today, the Nazarite vow, and next time, the prayer of blessing from Aaron. Remember our context? We're about to go on a journey with ancient Israel in the wilderness wanderings. And the first two opening Bible talks have really been setting the scene for our travel plans with Moses and the children of Israel and most of the adults as well. Well, now let's pause for a moment before before our journey begins. And in chapter 6, verses 1 to 21, we have this perhaps strange little section on Nazarite vows. And I want to ask, what do we do with this as New Testament believers? Well, the first thing that we do is we hear it read. So Hannah is going to do that right now for us. Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 to 21. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink, and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes, fresh or dried. All the days of his separation he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. All the days of his vow of separation no razor shall touch his head. Until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord, he shall be holy." he shall let the locks of hair of his head grow long. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body, not even for his father or for his mother, for brother or sister. If they die, shall he make himself unclean, because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation he is holy to the Lord. And if any man dies very suddenly beside him and he defiles his consecrated head, then he shall shave his head on the day of his cleansing. On the seventh day he shall shave it. On the eighth day he shall bring two turtle doves or two pigeons to the priest to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and the priest shall offer one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering, and make atonement for him because he sinned by reason of the dead body. And he shall consecrate his head that same day and separate himself to the Lord for the days of his separation and bring a male lamb a year old for a guilt offering. But the previous period should be void because his separation was defiled. 
and this is the law for the Nazarite, when the time of his separation has been completed. He shall be brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and he shall bring his gift to the Lord, one male lamb, a year old, without blemish, for a burnt offering, and one ewe lamb, a year old, without blemish, as a sin offering, and one ram, without blemish, as a peace offering, and a basket of unleavened bread, loaves of fine flour mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and their grain offering, and their drink offerings. And the priest shall bring them before the Lord, and offer his sin offering, and his burnt offering. And he shall offer the ram as a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord, with the basket of unleavened bread. The priest shall offer also its grain offering and its drink offering. And the Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and shall take the hair of his consecrated head and put it on the fire that is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. And the priest shall take the shoulder of the ram when it is boiled, and one unleavened loaf out of the basket and one unleavened wafer, and shall put them on the hands of the Nazarite, after he has shaved the hair of his consecration. And the priests shall wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. They are a holy portion for the priest, together with the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed. And after that the Nazarite may drink wine. This is the law of the Nazarite. But if he vows an offering to the Lord above his Nazarite vow, as he can afford, in exact accordance with the vow that he takes, then he shall do in addition to the law of the Nazarite. What do we do with this uh, strange section about no haircuts, no wine and cheese parties, and no going to funerals? Well, first we seek to understand it in its original context. So the nation of Israel has just been called out by God, remember starting with Abraham and now through Moses, they're called to be a holy people, a kingdom of priests to serve the living God. Some people are called to serve Israel in the wilderness wanderings and then eventually into the promised land, and they will be the priests, and they must come from the tribe of Levi. So if you're a son born into a particular family in ancient Israel and your tribe was Levitical, you didn't really need to stress out in year 11 and 12 at the careers desk, wondering what on earth should you do with your life, or which uni course should you enrol in? Should you do computer science, majoring in ethical hacking? Or maybe you, should you do a double degree of circus training and origami? Or should you do math in America or maths here in Australia? Well, if you're a son born in the tribe of Levi, then service at the temple, at the tabernacle and later in the temple, was your career choice. God had already determined your vocational path. But what the Nazarite vow allows is for non-Levitical men and women to devote themselves to holiness, to separateness to the Lord. We see that in the passage Hannah just read, verse 3, verse 5, verse 6, verse 8, verse 12. All the days of your separation you are holy to the Lord or separate to the Lord. So we might say any lay person, male or female, can now devote themselves to the Lord and his service at any particular moment of their lives. And any person might find themselves wanting to live for a particular time of purity or separation or devotion to uh, the Lord. In Amos chapter 2, in the 8th century BC, many hundreds of years later, we find 
that the Nazarites are like the prophets. They're dedicated holy people. But tragically, in Amos's day, they are being mocked and ridiculed along with God's prophets. Well, in Numbers chapter 6, we see three clear sections across this chapter. Uh, so the chapter break up, if you like. Verses 1 to 8, the nature of the Nazarite vow is spelled out to us. Verses, uh, then on to verse 12, uh, verses 6 to 12 rather, what happens when there's an accidental contact with a dead body? And verses 13 to 21, uh, how the Nazarite vow ends, how, how the vow of service is to end. So from verses 1 to 8, we learn three things about the nature of this Nazarite vow. Firstly, it was voluntary, apart from a couple of unique examples, which I'll point out in a moment or two. So maybe you wake up one morning, you have your manna toast followed by a manna bagel with your manna milkshake, and then you sit down to read your Bible, which of course is only three books in the Old Testament at this stage, and you just have this overwhelming desire in your heart that you want to devote yourself to serve God in some special way. So no one's forcing you, you see, to become a Nazarite. No one's making you feel guilty. Your pastor's not there saying, hey, I think you'd look really cool as a Nazarite. Uh, it's something that's decided between you and the Lord in your heart. So it's voluntary. Second thing we learn that it's also a public vow or promise. So it's not something you decide to do and then not let anyone know about. For the simple reason, it becomes obvious that you've taken this vow of special obedience and dedication to the Lord. For men and for women, it means you grow your hair long and you never cut it during the period you are a Nazarite. So for blokes, you end up looking like maybe Tom Hanks on a deserted island with a volleyball called Wilson. You end up being hairy and scary. For women, you end up looking like maybe Eddie Van Halen or some other heavy metal dude from the 1970s uh, with a serious shampoo stockpile and lots of bad hair days. So people would say, aha, that person with their hair dragging on the ground or looking like they should go to a barber or a hairdresser, they must be a Nazarite. Also as a Nazarite, we learn that you abstain from drinking wine and also eating grapes which might not seem like a big deal for us. But in this culture, that meant standing apart, being different at most festivals and feasts and family gatherings where wine was a pretty standard drink. The other element of this public vow or display was around the death of someone close to you. Your period of dedication as a Nazarite means that you can't go to a family funeral or you can't carry the casket out of the church. Your period of mourning, your period of sorrow was to be set apart, you see, from the deceased, much like the high priest across Israel, according to Leviticus 21. So these three aspects of your Nazarite time, three abstinences, if you like, from haircuts, from the fruit of the vine, from dead bodies, meant it was a public display of private devotion between you and the Lord God. We're not told exactly why these things are singled out. We can speculate some of them and say, well, maybe, well, not maybe, dead bodies did make someone unclean. And they reminded us that God is holy and death is a, therefore a reminder of sin. What we can say, though, is that the Nazarite man or woman was to separate themselves from these things and they were to separate themselves to the Lord. 
So separate yourself from these things, but separate yourself to the Lord. So it's firstly voluntary. Secondly, it's public. Thirdly, the Nazarite vow of devotion was usually for a temporary period of time. This comes out really clearly in verses 13 to 21. This is the law for the Nazarite, we read. When the time of his or her separation has been completed, they shall be brought to the entrance of the tabernacle. They bring their gift to the Lord, which is the four main sacrifices you read about in Leviticus chapters 1 to 4. In other words, the full range of offerings brought by sinners before God. And then the Nazarite shaves their head, their consecrated hair at the entrance of the tabernacle, and then the priest burns that in the fire and, we, and so forth. So this really is to indicate the Nazarite vow. Your Nazarite vow has come to an end. And the person now is back to being a normal lay person across Israel. And you can have a nice glass of red, maybe to celebrate with family and friends, and maybe have a good wash of that scalp after dinner. So clearly three things. We learn about the Nazarites from Numbers chapter 6. It's voluntary, it's public, and it's also temporary. Now across the Bible we have a few famous examples of Nazarites. I should say, by the way, that Jesus being a Nazarene has nothing whatsoever to do with the word Nazarite. It's a completely different word, as much as we'd maybe like it to be similar. similar. It's not. Jesus, you see, was from the town of Nazareth, so that makes him a Nazarene, not a Nazarite, Right? Uh, but we do get famous Nazarites across the Bible. And maybe you think of the long-haired strongman Samson in the book of Judges, and you'd be right. And what's interesting about Samson the Nazarite, though, is that he's <clears throat> chosen by God from birth, uh, and his parents take this oath for their son. And we also read in the book of Judges that his mum is also a Nazarite. But then Samson spends most of his life trying to be like every other man. And that's a common phrase across those chapters in Judges. And he bombs out big time on the abstinences, on the things to avoid that are required as a Nazarite. So Samson drinks wine uh, far too much, it seems, at parties. He hangs around dead bodies. In fact, he causes most of the carnage. And in the end, his hair gets cut and this causes all sorts of drama. I think it's fair to say that Samson is not a great example of following through on this Nazarite vow. But Samuel, he seems to be a better example in the Old Testament. Again, he's chosen by God from birth, and this seems to be he seems to be a Nazarite for all of his life. There's probably enough evidence inside the Bible and also outside by the early church writers to think that John the Baptist also took a Nazarite vow. And the early church historian Eusebius wants to tell us that the Apostle James, the half-brother of Jesus, was also a Nazarite for a time. And then, as you read the book of Acts, it appears the Apostle Paul did something uh, similar for a period of time. So in Acts chapter 18, verse 18, we read, Paul stayed many days longer, and then he took leave of the brothers, set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and, Pris and Aquila, and then at Centria, he had his he had cut his hair, and we read, for he was under a vow. And then there's a further reference in Acts 21. So it's highly likely that Paul has some period of time when he's devoted himself uh, to be like a Nazarite. So there's a few examples of Numbers chapter 6 being worked out uh, among some of God's people. 
But let me ask the question now, what's it all about in the Old Testament? And what do we do as New Testament believers? Should we still make and take Nazarite vows? I really like what US pastor and author Mark Dever says about the purpose of this vow in Old Testament times. He writes, in part, the Nazarites function as a mobile sign and reminder to the Israelite people about how God has set the whole nation apart. In that sense, they are like a walking Lord's Supper, as it were, reminding the people that they are special and set apart for God's work. I think it's helpful. So the Nazarite, you see a Nazarite and they're to remind you that you are part of a holy nation. Well, in Numbers chapter 6 and then across the Old Testament, the Nazarite vow was an opportunity for any Israelite, apart from the priests, of course, to say to God, for this particular period of my life, and maybe it's six months or a year or two years, I promise to consecrate myself totally to you. God, I want to take this vow of separation and discipline for the purpose of devotion to you and your ways. Now, across church history, we have, of course, various monasteries being set up, uh, places of separation and devotion to God and his kingdom. So you get monasteries across church history for both men and women. We even have some monastery examples, don't we, where they, where they have distinctive haircuts. Perhaps think of Martin Luther before his conversion to the gospel of grace. For me, having come to faith in the Lord Jesus out of Roman Catholicism, way back in my uni days now, I'm not a big fan of the monastic life, I should say. In fact, I think you could argue from the New Testament that there's really no place for the Christian to leave the world and enter this separated life of monastic vows and oaths, at least not for life or for a significant period of your Christian journey, at least. Remember the New Testament call and prayer from the Lord Jesus in John 17 to be in the world, but not of the world. And Jesus will even pray that his followers not be removed from living in this world. So what do we ultimately do with this Nazarite vow? How does the New Testament help us interpret and apply this part of Old Testament scripture? Well, a couple of key verses in the New Testament, I think, point us to see that this Nazarite vow is still applicable, but it now applies to every believer in the Lord Jesus. That is every Christian, man, woman, teenager, we're called to devote ourselves fully to God and his kingdom ways. Not that it now means we have to abstain from haircuts or alcohol or going to funerals, but now rather the Christian life or Christian vow says or looks like living in the world Whatever stage of life God has given to you, maybe that's at work or at uni or home life or retirement. So living in the world and Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness. And you don't need to devote a special vow to God to do that. It's actually called normal Christian living with a kingdom perspective in mind. Another applicable verse when it comes to thinking about the Nazarite vow to us today is Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, perhaps very familiar to some of you. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, Paul writes, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, 
but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That is, again, the Nazarite vow gets applied through the gospel lens to all of life for the Christian. So all of life, daily, weekly, yearly, we are to offer ourselves up, present our bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly devoted to God, which is, of course, our life of worship. According to the New Testament, when we repent and believe in Jesus, our devotion, our consecration, our separation is to be for a whole lifetime, not just for a period of time like six months or a year or so. Now, in saying all this, I don't think there's a problem for you and me to want to specifically devote a period of time where we might maybe deepen or express our commitment to God and his kingdom in some special way. So perhaps the form of the Nazarite vow for Christians today might be morphed into, say, a time of prayer and fasting. So a time of dedicated devotion to sacrifice something, to abstain from something in order to focus more fully on the Lord. Perhaps you have significant decisions to make. Maybe you have choices to choose from that are all good and godly ways and you might spend some time in prayer and fasting, abstaining from something. But when this is done, of course, the Lord Jesus tells us that this is not now a public thing to parade about, though there's nothing wrong with telling people what you are doing. It's all about your motives for doing so. So for me, I take maybe, I suppose, a mini Nazarite vow each Sunday morning before church. I get up in the morning and I fast and I pray. This enables me to devote the early morning before church to pray more specifically for God's kingdom and the advancement of the gospel. It also, for me, it has the added bonus that not eating on a Sunday morning means I don't feel like throwing up when I stand to preach, which is a helpful thing. Uh, when we've planted churches over the last couple of decades here in Canberra, I've sometimes gone away for the day and removed myself from the world and, and daily life, as it were. Maybe you have your own particular time when you pray and you fast. Or perhaps this is an area where the Nazarite vow might be reinterpreted. Maybe I've just given you some food for thought in those things in talking about not eating. Well, one final thing I need to remind us of as we close this Bible talk, and I need to keep hearing this as well as you, that is, no matter what we do, whether that's prayer or fasting, or doing your own version of a Nazarite vow, or having a, a punk rock hairstyle and fasting from technology, or removing yourself from a particular situation for a period of time. Whatever you do, none of these things will make us more holy or more acceptable before God. For it is only because of and through Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, do we find our peace and acceptance before God. For he is our source of holiness. He is our model of devotion. So faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and trusting ourselves to his gospel is the only way back to God. It's the only way to be consecrated. It's the only way to prepare for the journey we are about to take in life. Well, I hope that's helpful. Now, go and wash your hair or cut it if it's getting too long 
and to God be the glory as you seek first Jesus' kingdom and his righteousness. Thanks for listening to Meals for Maturity. Keep growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ.